Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. For thousands of years, people have gotten high off plant-based substances, cocaine, marijuana, heroin. But in the last decade, there's been a fundamental shift. These days, our drugs increasingly come from factories, and not coincidentally, they increasingly kill the people using them. St. Louis author Ben Westoff has spent years researching this sea change. His new book, Fentanyl Inc., How Rogue Chemists Are Creating the Deadliest Wave of the Opioid Epidemic, traces the history of synthetic drugs and follows fentanyl from factories in China to the streets of St. Louis. He's joining us in studio today to discuss what he's learned. When you think about the ongoing opioid crisis and the influx of fentanyl in Missouri, what confuses you or puzzles you the most? What questions do you have for Ben Westoff? Give us a call at 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. Or you can send us a tweet at STL on air or email us at talk at stlpublicradio.org. And full disclosure, I was Ben's editor for three years when we both lived in Los Angeles. That ended in 2014. I was not at all involved with his work on this project. And on that note, Ben Westoff, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. You wrote this book and you did a lot of the research in St. Louis, but you first started down this path back when you were in L.A. and you were reporting on drug overdose deaths at raves. What did you learn about those deaths? Well, the funny thing is I used to be a raver myself way back in the day. That is very funny, Ben. (laughs) (laughs) And people took ecstasy back then, but it didn't really seem like anyone was dying from it. And you fast forward to a few years ago, and at every one of these raves, there was one or more people dying. And so I wondered what had changed, and it sent me down a rabbit hole to investigate the different adulterants that were in these drugs. And... It turned out they were all synthetic, they had nothing to do with actual ecstasy, and they were made in Chinese labs. And eventually that that brought me to fentanyl, which is a replacement for heroin, except same thing, it's synthetic and made in Chinese labs. And in many cases, you found out, these kids at these raves taking drugs, they had no idea what they were even taking. Um, Is that a matter of not doing due diligence, or is this a matter beyond their control? It's both. Yeah. I mean, when you're a young kid at a rave, I don't think anybody really knows much what they're taking. But back in the day, it really did tend to be pure MDMA, which is the drug usually found in ecstasy. And that's not completely safe, but it's generally almost always safe. These new drugs, however, nobody knows the correct dosage. Nobody knows what they are. And that's why so many kids have been overdosing and dying. So these drugs are particularly deadly. Um, I know in Los Angeles, they were a big part of the rave scene. How pervasive are they outside of that? They're everywhere, especially in the U.S. Uh, There was a study done not too long ago that found of almost all the drugs sold as ecstasy, only a fraction of them had actual MDMA in it. Hmm. And in some cases, they've been adulterated with fentanyl. Tell us what it, I mean, this drug, it's the scariest word for many parents. (laughs) Should we be as frightened of it as we are? I think so. And the thing with fentanyl is not only is it much cheaper to produce and therefore more profitable for drug dealers, but it's also much more powerful. It's 50 times stronger than heroin. And so even a tiny little bit can kill people and does. And in places like St. Louis, you'll, it's very hard to find any pure heroin at all on the streets. It's almost all cut with fentanyl. And that crosses over to other drugs, too. It's almost impossible to find pure cocaine. It's cut into meth often. And even prescription pills 
that are stamped, you know, they look like real pills with the Percocet logo or, or what have you, but those are often cut with uh, fentanyl as well, and that's what killed the singer Prince, for example. What's the origin of fentanyl? Did it originally have a good purpose? Yeah, it was originally developed by a Belgian chemist named Paul Janssen, and it was and continues to be an important medical drug. Um, women giving birth are given fentanyl for epidurals. It's important for end-of-life care, for maintaining pain. It's, it's kind of the strongest painkiller that people can get. And it became a best-selling drug in Europe, it was the company, Paul Janssen's company, was bought by Johnson & Johnson in the early 60s. And Johnson & Johnson continues to make a fentanyl patch. And they've been tied up in all this opioid legislation that's going on as well. This fentanyl patch, this would have a real medical purpose if used correctly? Yes, but it's also been widely abused too. How would people abuse a patch? Well, they, you know, get it on the black market, you know, some is diverted from pharmacies. And I talk to people who would put on two or three or more at the same time. That, I mean, we're all used to people putting drugs up their nose, but the idea of just taking it through the skin, people will always find a way to get high. Yeah. And another way the opioid crisis really got going was people would take OxyContin pills and kind of crumble them up and, and snort them or dissolve them and shoot them up as well. And then how did that, these people started taking these prescription drugs, how did that end up turning into what today is thought of more of a fentanyl crisis? Well, the first wave of the opioid crisis was with prescription pills. And people received these for injuries that really normally you wouldn't get for su such a strong narcotic. And the problem was someone might even have a root canal and get uh, an opioid. And then their pain would be gone a couple weeks later, but they would find themselves addicted to these pills. And so you saw lots of law-abiding citizens turn to street heroin because heroin has the same essentially effects as pills like OxyContin. And so that was the second wave of the opioid crisis. Now, however, like I said, it's almost impossible to find pure heroin because there's so much fentanyl in it, and now that represents the third wave of the opioid crisis. And as you say in your subtitle, the deadliest wave. Yeah. Uh, the last couple of years, deaths from prescription pills and deaths from heroin have actually been going down, but the fentanyl deaths keep going up. I know in Missouri, that's definitely been um, been on a major increase. Now, your investigation into these synthetic drugs took you down some pretty dark and dangerous paths. Namely, you became one of the first journalists or the first journalist to penetrate a fentanyl laboratory. Um, it's kind of an amazing story. How did you talk your way into this place? Yeah, well, this was in China. And, and you don't even speak Mandarin. <laughs> no, so. I don't, no, I don't. Um, it all started just on the internet because if you simply Googled buy drugs in China, buy fentanyl in China, all of these companies would come up and with their email addresses. And I just started emailing people and talking to them on Skype and pretending to be a customer. I said that I was coming to China and asked if they'd be willing to show me the lab. And some said they would. And so basically I showed up. I had to tell a lot of stories, a lot of lies. I, I was asked directly if I was a journalist. And I said no and tried to change the subject. And then eventually in Shanghai, I met a chemist who, after talking to me for almost half a day to try to feel me out, 
agreed to show me his lab and it was in the deep sort of outskirts of Shanghai and our driver was this kind of beefy guy who I was sort of worried was the operations muscle and I, I was pretty nervous but and you were there by yourself at this point yeah I had a translator but she didn't come with and so finally we got to the lab and it was a very sort of nondescript office park and inside it looked just like any other sort of high school chemistry lab except that a lot of times the tables were piled high with these different drugs they were in beakers they were um you know being um being synthesized right before my eyes and these were different types of fentanyl called analogs and these were also something called synthetic cannabinoids which some people know as k2 or else synthetic marijuana. And these are causing a big scourge in St. Louis as well. And what was the legality of what this Chinese factory was doing at the point that you were inside of it? Well, all of the drugs they were making were scheduled or illegal in the U.S. and in places like Europe, but they were actually legal in China. And that's how these labs work. The minute China makes something illegal, they tweak the chemical formula just a little bit. So now you have something that is technically legal, but it has the same effect as the old banned drug, pretty much. And then how do those drugs get from this factory in China into the hands of uh, people in the U.S. who want to do drugs? Well, there are a couple ways. Some is sent directly through the mail, and people use the dark web and even the regular Internet to order these drugs literally to their door and they're delivered through the U.S. Postal Service or UPS or FedEx. And the other way is that huge volumes are sent from China to the Mexican cartels. And the Mexican cartels then package them up and send them north through the border, through regular border crossings, kind of smuggled in cars usually. The way that drugs have more traditionally been smuggled into yeah. the U.S. I understand that system relies on something called precursors. Not to get too technical here, but help us understand what a, how this precursor business would work from China to Mexico to the U.S. Well, the easiest way to think about it is you probably remember how in the meth crisis last decade, that you always hear about these meth chemists um, using Sudafed, and they would go to a pharmacy and buy all the Sudafed they had, and then they would kind of break that down and use the, the Sudafedrin, the main drug, to make meth. And so that's a precursor. And with fentanyl, it's the same way. It's not, the precursors aren't something that get people high in and of themselves, but they're the critical necessary ingredients to make fentanyl. So in Mexico, they don't have the skilled chemists who can make these precursors, so they get them almost all from China. And then they come on boats, you know, in huge quantities, and the cartels take the chemical process the last step of the way to make fentanyl, and then they send it into the U.S. So I thought one of the most interesting parts of your book was when you visited a lab where they're making these precursors. You write, two floors of the facility were crammed with salespeople, perhaps two or three hundred, most in front of desktop computers at cubicles. It was a bustling place with cold calling, deals being struck, and money being made. Salespeople offered to speak with potential customers on just about any app or platform they desired, fitting for a company that calls itself the first e-commerce conglomerate in the chemical industry in its Chinese 
Chinese ads. Many employees seemed to be fairly recent college graduates. The facilities were a bit drab, but with plenty of natural light, and the environment wasn't unpleasant. Employee cubicles were filled with plants, stuffed animals, and other personal tokens familiar in Western offices. Is this basically where they're making the, the core of fentanyl? Is this the Chinese version of biotech? Yeah, in a lot of ways it is. It was really shocking to see because I was expecting some sort of underground operation in a secret facility. But this company, which is called Yuan Chung, actually puts its address on the internet and invites potential customers to come by. And so that's what I did. And I was stunned to see two full floors of salespeople, you know, these young salespeople at these desks. And they were happy to give me a tour of the whole facility, which was uh, in this hotel in the Chinese city of Wuhan. And the really shocking thing is just how sort of modern and above board it all seems. You know, they were sending me Skype messages with all these emojis <laughs> and their um, CEO, when I questioned him about it, he basically was like, yeah, it's legal in China, so we sell it. Um, they do, however, send it in fake packaging. So That's got to be a sign that they know what they're doing. Yeah, exactly. So they might send it in. It looks like dog food from the wrapper on the outside, but inside are these dangerous chemicals. And when I asked him, the CEO, about that, he got uncharacteristically silent. That's interesting. Um, you also wrote that they receive vast amounts of government assistance, speaking about this one particular company that, that does so many of these precursors. What kind of government assistance are we talking here? Well, when you said biotech, it's, it's kind of similar because the government is really trying to encourage its what it calls its tech industry. And so it wants them to export new products and the tech industry includes these chemical companies in china that's how they define tech and so all these companies are encouraged to develop new chemicals and export them through a number of subsidies from the government and also tax rebates they're called value-added tax rebates for exports and so basically if a company makes fentanyl and exports it they get a big rebate from the government. That seems crazy. I mean, it is. So Trump is trying to have this trade war here. Is this even on the table within this trade war? They have been arguing about these issues. My findings are, are just coming out, so it hasn't fully penetrated yet. But Trump and the trade war have definitely been part of the negotiations to try to get China to scale back exporting all these dangerous fentanyls to the U.S. And actually encouraging it with their tax code. That just seems crazy. Yeah, it is. And it, it becomes a question of, is this just capitalism gone completely awry? Or does the Chinese government know and it's more nefarious than that? Do you think that the people that you talk to, the sales reps that are trying to sell you this stuff, do you think they connected their work at all with people dying? Well, nobody much abuses fentanyl in China, so they don't have this epidemic here. And so people in China that I talked to, almost none of them had even heard of fentanyl. And so when some of these salespeople told me that they didn't know what they were selling, I tended to believe them. Now the people at the top of the food chain can't make that same excuse. You talked to the Chinese government or a spokesperson for, for one of its parts, um, and they said that the problem is Western appetites for drugs. 
reading your book and looking at all the ways that people are constantly trying to get high, no matter what hurdle you put in front of them, at some point, do they have a point there? I think they really do. And I think that decades of the war on drugs have showed us that if we just try to take out the supply side, we're probably going to fail. I mean, killing Pablo Escobar didn't stop cocaine from coming from Colombia, certainly, and capturing El Chapo hasn't stopped drugs from Mexico. And so I think ultimately the U.S. needs to take a long, hard look in the mirror and say, what are we doing to reverse this problem here? And all these lawsuits against the opioid uh, makers are one thing, but we need to practice something called harm reduction, which is basically admitting that people are going to use drugs and how can we help them do it more safely. I know the U.S. has also tried to prosecute some Chinese drug manufacturers. Have they had any luck with that? No. China has refused to send any, give any of them up, and they don't have to. They kind of want the U.S. to stop meddling. How does China treat people who, you know, you said fentanyl isn't a big problem there, but say somebody does get addicted to drugs over in China. I thought it was pretty interesting what you wrote about how they handle that there. Yeah, well, we think of our drug penalties as really harsh here in the U.S., and they are, but in China, they're a lot worse. You can get the death penalty for possessing only a small amount of drugs like meth and heroin, and even people who are addicted are given these, have to enroll in these crazy programs where they're monitored basically everywhere they go. So if they haven't submitted to their regularly scheduled drug testing and they show up at a hotel, the cops are alerted and they're taken somewhere to like take a pee test. It's it's crazy. So this maybe not maybe isn't a system we'd want to put in place here in the U.S. I think fair to say not. <laughs> um, we did hear from one of our listeners. I'll get to that in a, a second. But I did just want to remind you that if you have a question or comment on this issue, um, we've got an expert here in the studio. So you can give us a call at 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. Or you can send us a tweet at STL on air or email us at talk at stlpublicradio.org. So this question comes from our listener, Madonna in Crestwood. She says, if a patient meticulously followed the prescribing instructions on their opioid drug, like oxycodone or fentanyl, would they still become addicted? In other words, if they never abused the drugs, were they still in danger of addiction? This question has persisted in my mind because it switches the blame from the person taking the drugs to the company that petitioned to have the prescribing limits expanded too far. It's a really interesting question. Ben, is that something that you'd feel comfortable answering? Well, I think it depends on the person, and I think there absolutely have been people who have just been following the instructions and have found themselves addicted. But things are changing really fast, and there's all sorts of new legislation designed to have doctors prescribe fewer opioids. And I think it's fair to say that nowadays they're they're not, they're prescribed for less frivolous reasons, you could say. And so I think often if you follow the doctor's orders nowadays, you're, you're probably going to be okay. Things are better. Okay. We need to take a quick break. We've been talking to Ben Westoff. His new book, Fentanyl Inc., hits the streets this week. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com. Welcome back. 
We're talking today with author Ben Westhoff about his new book, Fentanyl, Inc. His book tour launches next Wednesday, September 4th, with an event at the St. Louis County Library. Ben, you grew up in Minnesota. What brought you to St. Louis? I came for school at WashU. And then you came back, though. <laughs> Tell us the more complicated version of that answer. <laughs> yeah, well, I lived in New York, San Francisco, and Los Angeles. And I came back, you know, we had kids and we wanted a cheaper cost of living. We wanted to be closer to our families. And um, good old-fashioned parking spaces were so plentiful here. There's a lot that I love about St. Louis. I feel like that you should be an ad for the Chamber of Commerce, your, your love for this <laughs> so city. So much parking. <laughs> <laughs> on the other hand, your book, um, it does go in depth on some St. Louis angles on this particular crisis. And this is maybe not the face the Chamber of Commerce would want to put forward. There's a, a memorable chapter that takes place right here in the city of St. Louis in the old Magic Chef factory on the hill. Tell us a little bit about what led you there and, and what you saw when you were there. Yeah, this is a facility I didn't even know existed. A lot of people know the Magic Chef Mansion. I Compton Heights, yeah. Yeah, Compton Heights, beautiful there. But the factory itself is not too far away, and it's completely unused now. But it, it was a half million square feet of factory building more stoves than anywhere else in the world at the time. But since in the last decade or so, it has become a shooting gallery for opioid addicts largely. And so they're not shooting guns, they're shooting up. Yeah, exactly. And so it's people who are shooting up in heroin and kind of passing out and now fentanyl. And so I was taken there by a former St. Louis fentanyl dealer who himself had also been a heroin addict. He actually lived for a time in a little abandoned boxcar um, there's actually a railroad track that goes right up to the factory where the stove parts were delivered right to the front door. And so he spent a lot of time there and he took me there. It was pretty harrowing also because we had to kind of pull up a piece of a door on the side of the building to, to kind of shimmy in there. And it's kind of broken glass and pools of water everywhere. And there are people shooting up in dark corners. Despite the efforts of local law enforcement, you also describe how remarkably easy it is to get heroin or fentanyl in St. Louis. You talk to a former user from East Alton named Bree, um, and you write, as soon as you go over the McKinley Bridge, you stop at one of them gas stations, Bree said, adding that they tended to be prowled by dealers. They'll come up to anybody who's parking, getting gas, even getting cigarettes. They'll drive up to you and ask if you mess around. They give it to you for free. They give you samples first. One time we were over there and got about 24 of them for free from like 10 different guys. There's one condition, however. You must have a working cell phone and give them their number, and soon they'll be back in touch. They don't even give you time to really do it, said Bree. As soon as you pull off, they're like, how was it? Now, historically, these are people who might have used heroin. What has it done to St. Louis, the fact that they're using fentanyl instead? Well, it's been a very dramatic uptick in overdose deaths. And there are a lot of cases where longtime heroin users who have sort of survived for all these years take one dose that's spiked with fentanyl and they're killed. And in St. Louis, they're often sold as these things called beans, which are basically gelatin capsules filled with either heroin mixed with fentanyl or even pure fentanyl now. 
and they're sold for like five dollars a piece so it's it's incredibly so cheap. easy to get this yeah. and then a massive high or low yeah exactly and so for a lot of people heroin they've been addicted so long that heroin doesn't even get them high anymore mm. it just gets them past sick they might say so they don't have these flu-like withdrawal symptoms but with fentanyl for the first time in a long time they're able to get high again and so people specifically seek it out I thought it was very interesting in your book. You trace the history of a lot of these different drugs um, that come out of labs. And so many of them began in legitimate labs run by well-meaning chemists. And they're just sort of following scientific procedure. And they put the formula out there. And it takes off into the world. Do you think scientists bear any responsibility for how this has all turned out? Yeah, there are uh, so many cases, including with fentanyl, where the drug was originally developed for medical purposes and also scientific purposes often. And so in the old days, these formulas and these scientific papers are very obscure and they could only be found in university libraries. But in the age of the Internet, all of them were put online. And so rogue chemists who are looking to make drugs can simply call up these papers and learn the chemical formulas. And I talked with a number of these scientists, as well as parents whose children had died from these drugs made by these scientists, created by them. And what the scientists say is that you can't do legitimate science without this type of publication because it needs to be peer-reviewed. Other people need to be able to recreate what you've done. And so I think that's a compelling argument. At the same time, you, you really have to feel for these parents who've lost kids. And on the subject of responsibility, another local angle is Malincrot is based right here. Um, there's been a lot of talk about Purdue Pharma and recently a lot of talk about Johnson & Johnson. What about the role of this St. Louis pharmaceutical company? Well, last month, the Washington Post and a paper from West Virginia were able to get all these documents unsealed from a big pharmaceutical case. And it showed that Malincrot Pharmaceuticals, right, right here in St. Louis, one of their subsidiaries, had produced more opioid pills than any other company in the world. And it's something like 29 billion pills in the, the years at the height of the opioid epidemic. And so you mentioned Purdue Pharma, which is who made OxyContin and is usually blamed when people talk about the opioid crisis. But it was actually Malincrot made many, many more pills than, than Pharma. So there's St. Louis's undiscovered role in fueling this national nightmare. Yeah, and not only that, but they uncovered all these emails from different sales distributors and, and customers uh, doing business with Malincrot, and some of them were very callous. There was one customer who said something like, wow, these things are really flying off the shelves. It's almost like people are addicted to them, Ugh. and they are. And then the the Malincrot rep said something like, yeah, it's like Doritos. If, you know, Keep taking them. We'll make more. Not a good look for that company. No, it certainly isn't. So now that you have completely depressed every single one of us who's <laughs> listening to you here, I mean, this is just so sad what is what is happening and how every attempt to make things better seems to have only made things worse. What do you see as a solution that we could be looking at here? You mentioned harm reduction. Tell us a little bit more about those efforts. Yeah, well, like I said before, harm reduction is this basic philosophy. I kind of compare it to sex education. 
you know, if you're going to be in favor of abstinence education, you're kind of deluding yourself into believing that teenagers are never going to have sex. And the same thing with drugs. If you, you can either bury your head in the sand or we can come to terms with the fact that people are going to always use drugs. And so harm reduction techniques aim to minimize the damage. And so one part of it are something called fentanyl test strips. And fentanyl testing strips can almost immediately, it's kind of like a pregnancy test. If you mix up your drugs with a solution of water and dip the strips in there, it'll show one line if there's no presence of fentanyl, for example, and two if there is. I might have that backwards. But, um, <laughs> Don't can, take that to the bank. <laughs> yeah. But it can immediately show if fentanyl is in the mixture. And studies have shown that users are less likely to use so much, so quickly, or they might not use it at all if they find fentanyl in the mixture. Something else that's having a great effect is something called medication-assisted therapy or medication-assisted treatment. And basically, that is helping people come down off these drugs, not only with the new drugs with names like Suboxone, but also with traditional counseling and therapy. It's a combination. And so a lot of times people not only have sort of the, the chemical hooks of the drug to deal with, but they also have problems in their own lives. And studies have also shown that if people can untangle these problems in their lives, they can actually beat a lot of these types of opioid addictions. Going back to these harm reduction efforts for a minute, I thought one of the funniest scenes, I guess it's not funny, but it's ironic, one of these scenes in your book where you talked about how just like people have to try to smuggle drugs into raves, these people who are trying to get the drug test strips into raves, they've had to dodge the authorities just to get them in there. Why would somebody throwing a rave or an event where they know people are using drugs, why wouldn't they welcome these strips where people could make sure they're not about to take fentanyl? Yeah, exactly. There there are so many situations where if a promoter is throwing a rave or a big party, they legally cannot let people in to do this drug checking to, to offer these fentanyl testing strips. And the reason is a 2002 piece of legislation, I believe it's known as the Rave Act. And so that bars these, these promotions, uh, these people putting on these shows from knowingly allowing drug use on their on their property. And so, so they could end up getting prosecuted if, if this was evidence that they knew people were using drugs? So to speak, they think that. There hasn't actually been any sort of prosecution oh, okay. like this in a long, long time, but that's the fear. So they're sort of erring on the side of protecting themselves, not the people who, let's face it, are doing drugs at raves. Exactly. Um, you also mentioned that some states are looking to impose harsher sentencing on fentanyl dealers, and you clearly think this is a bad idea. Tell us why. Well, last year, Trump signed legislation called the STOP Act, and it actually did a lot of criminal justice reform, including for people who are found guilty of drug offenses. Now, that's great, and that was unexpected. But unfortunately, there's a specific clause in there for fentanyl. And so people with fentanyl charges don't get these sentences reduced. And in fact, many parts of the country, their sentences are getting raised and fentanyl prosecutions are getting harsher. Now, so why I, isn't that good? Well, I understand from the perspective there's so much death out there, the want, to, the desire to really hit back harder. But what we found, you know, like I said, the war on drugs, it's just not proving effective. In a lot of cases, the prosecutions are focused on distinguishing between dealers and users. Mm. 
But the problem with this thinking is that oftentimes the dealers are just addicted users themselves and they only started dealing because they needed to maintain their own habits. There's also been a lot of talk about we just need to get China to crack down on these kind of factories that you visit, that you visited. But you write in the book that if China cracks down on synthetic drugs, India could step up to fill that void. Why would that be even worse in your point of view? Well, that's already happening. And the problem with India is that at least China has been willing to come to the table and listen to what the U.S. has said, whereas India... There's been very little engagement about the issue of these drugs, even while it's starting to produce fentanyl in huge quantities as well. That's even though historically India has been more of an ally of this country. It's just not an issue they, they're interested in taking on. Well, I think the the pressure and the focus hasn't really been on them. So hopefully it can change. But, you know, even if India sl- stopped making it, it could migrate to other countries as well. So that is a very sobering look at a very sobering problem. Ben Westoff, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you, Sarah. Ben will launch his next book tour um, on Wednesday, September 4th at the St. Louis County Library headquarters. Attendance is free. There should be plenty of room for people who want to co- come out. And his book, Fentanyl Inc., if you're interested in reading it, that's a great place to get it. It's also in bookstores around the city. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU.